You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. Welcome and thank you for joining me. I created this podcast along with everything I do at yourparentingmentor.com to support and inspire you to be the best parent you can be. I know for a fact and from experience that parenting was never meant to be done alone. From conception to preschool, my mission is to give you the tools, strategies, and knowledge to embrace and elevate your parenting experience. I'm dedicated to supporting, inspiring, and guiding you to nurture your child's immense potential with as much joy and ease as humanly possible. Make sure to take time to check out all of the resources I have gathered for you in the show notes, as well as on my website, yourparentingmentor.com. And be sure to get on my email list so you do not miss a single episode and other products and events I curate specifically for you. And please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions, concerns, or feedback. A warm welcome to you and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel, and today I have with me Claire Rubman. And Claire is a uh, published author, and she has just come out with a book actually earlier this year that is called This May Be Difficult to Read, But You Really Should for Your Child's Sake. So Claire, I'm excited to be talking about this because I know you are... um, a cognitive development psychologist, and I'm sure have a lot of wisdom for all the parents listening. So thank you for making the time and thank you for being here today. Well, hello, and thank you very much for having me. Alrighty. So um, as I always like to get uh, started, I always like my guests to define what the art of parenting means to them. Well, so as a parent of three grown children, I think that the art of parenting is accepting the child that you have and parenting the child that you have rather than the child that you wish you had. I also think, um, as a follow-on from that, the art of parenting is letting your child lead and following your child's needs and directions. Beautiful. And and when you say follow the child, that's my, my big theme is to follow the child. So I, I love that. And would you have anything to add to that definition more from a professional standpoint? I think looking at the research, it's good as a parent to stop, take a breath, and remember that the journey is equally as important, if not more important than the final outcome. I think perhaps... Um, Parents, especially today, are living frenetic lives um, between working 40 hours a week and cooking and cleaning and putting food on the table and making sure they don't run out of toilet paper. It's often scary to run at the pace that they run at and yet still find time to enjoy each and every minute of their child's adventure. So Claire, before we get too involved uh, in our conversation, I would love if you could share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. Sure. So I'm from Scotland. Um, Sometimes it feels like I'm from another planet, but it's only Scotland. I've lived here for over 30 years and I raised three children here. I teach at uh, my local community college and I started out life as a kindergarten teacher in my professional endeavors. And now that I'm at the college level, 
I look at my students, some of whom are extremely accomplished and some of whom really struggle extracting the printed word or meaning from the printed word in their textbooks. And so I think back to my days in kindergarten and I wonder, how is it that some people can read and some people don't do a great job? And so if you look at the statistics, one in five college freshmen has to take a remedial reading class in that freshman year, and yet they all graduated from high school. And so what's going on? So that got me thinking about reading. I've been thinking about it for a long time. I used to wonder why some children would come into my kindergarten classroom as readers, and some children would leave my kindergarten classroom as non-readers, not the same children, obviously. But um, it's always fascinated me. And I think that when you read the research, the cognitive developmental research, We have the most beautiful research on the reading process. We know how we read. We know why we read. We know why children make mistakes when they're reading. And yet that information hasn't been disseminated to the public. And so parents don't necessarily know what it takes to comprehend. And I think because parents do it so effortlessly as adults, it's often hard to go back in time and remember what it was like to be a child learning to read. So that was my impetus for writing the book. If we have this beautiful research, why don't we share it? So I decided to share it. <laughs> Perfect. And, and, and thank you for sharing it because I, I know it will help a lot of parents and it is so important. And it, it's interesting how I feel that when we discover something, like when we discover a truth or like you, you know, research, and we go, oh my gosh, this ne- <laughs> this needs to be shared with everybody. Because I kind of feel the same way. I'm I'm I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm kind of a late bloomer in my career as a parenting mentor. And I discovered uh, Montessori education uh, kind of late in life, and have since just made it my mission to share it with the world because I just think it is genius information. And so. So thank you for, for wanting to share what you've discovered. Well, thank you. I absolutely agree with you about the Montessori approach. I think it's phenomenal. I think it's also important um, just to encourage parents because I think we we live in a strange time and we've gone through a pandemic and we've gone through you know all kinds of strange situations. And I think it's important to remind parents that help is around <laughs> and we're there to support their parenting. Yes, yes. And and I think there's more help available today than there ever has been thanks to, you know, the internet, the digital world and all, all that. And at the same time, I feel like there's almost an overwhelm of, of information sometimes, I think, for parents, and it, it can get a little confusing to make sense of it. Well, absolutely. You know, that's one of the things I do in the book is to show parents how children think and learn and process information so that Mm -hmm. they can extract the information that they want and need. Because if we look from our child's perspective and we think as a child thinks and we learn as a child learns, then we can not only teach them to read, but we can just parent better if we know how their cognitive processes work. Yes, so true. Like to to be to be at that level is so important and to understand the different levels that they're going through. So so true. Like not Absolutely. to have those expe- yeah, those expectations of, you know, they should know better or something like that. Well, absolutely. And you know, Piaget gave us a blueprint for how children, you know, cognitively process information, and we've had the information since the 1950s. 
we know from infants, toddlers, all the way through adolescence, we absolutely know how the brain works and, you know, what we should expect from children and from adolescents. And yet somehow we, we strangely don't share that information too well. So I shared it in the book. Thank you. Thank you. And when you say that this information isn't shared, so I know that this is, you know, geared towards parents, but what about the kind of the educational uh, system. Do you feel that this research is is being shared with you know kindergarten, first grade teachers, and and so forth? Listen, teachers do a phenomenal job, and so the book is really validation for good teachers. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's important to um, focus on what we want out of our educational system and what we are hoping for for our children. If our goal is to have autonomous children who can think, process share information, be kind to others and have good mental health. I think, you know, when we teach the whole child, that's one approach. When we're singularly focused on, you know, colleges with, you know, brand names, I think that's a different approach. And so really what our goal is dictates the process and, you know, what we think of it. So true. I'm I'm for the whole child process. <laughs> and and it's interesting how, you know, you you say in in um, on your website, how one, you know, one out of five freshman uh, students needs remedial reading. And I'm, I'm a dual, you know, multilingual, uh, multicultural, I was raised in France, and then moved here and, and finished my education in the States. And I remember, I had a memory of a high school. So this was a brand new high school for me, I only did my senior year there. And it was in Washington, D.C. And I remember that there were classmates of mine who had a really, really hard time reading when we had to do uh, read out loud. And I just thought, like, how can this be? This was, this seems so unfair to me that we were all, you know, the same age in the same classroom and some just had a much, much harder time with it. You know, for me, it comes from students kind of going through the system without anybody really paying attention for them to to get as far as being a senior in high school and not being able to read. Where where do you think that comes from? I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of different issues that come up around that, but where where does that stem from in the beginning? Absolutely. You make such a wonderful point. In elementary school, in the primary grades, we learn to read. And then later on, we read to learn. And so we don't necessarily notice that children are not comprehending because it's a few years into their schooling, you know, that the problem starts to emerge. And the truth of the matter is that children are endowed with phenomenal memories. And so sometimes they can use rote memorization to mask the fact that they can't comprehend what they're reading. So they just memorize it. And then it's a little bit hard to tell in the beginning whether or not they're memorizing or they're truly understanding because we don't necessarily test for understanding. We test for rote memorization in the early grades. And so one way that we could tweak that problem would be to, well, first of all, teach reading comprehension skills. And second of all, to actually test their understanding of concepts rather than their memorization of them. Right, right. And this, I mean, this is was beyond even comprehension. This was the students who were having trouble, I think, deciphering the written word on the page, right? It was it was kind of hard to to listen to because they were they were really having a hard time. And I just to me there's a there's a 
massive failure on the part of the educational system to let a 17, 18-year-old not be able to, to read. Oh, absolutely. And it's a humbling experience to ask your students in the college classroom to go around the room and read out loud. Mm. It's, it's shocking. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I'm sure that there are parents who are listening who, um, you know, have younger children, and they want to do the very best they can at home to make sure that their children are good readers and comprehend and all of that. What are some kind of tips for parents of things that can be done at home from from the very beginning? Absolutely. That's a great question. So that's a lot of questions all wrapped in. It is. It is. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's okay. So the book, This May Be Difficult to Read, can either be taken for parents of um, infants and toddlers who are just beginning the journey, and it would be a preventative measure, or for parents who have older children, and this would be more like remediation. And what the book recommends, what I recommend as a cognitive developmental psychologist, is to make reading part of your everyday life so that we create a need to read within our lives. You know, in the digital era, children can watch videos, they can watch television, they don't necessarily have to read. So we want to reinvent the idea that reading is for a purpose and not just because you're told to do it in school. And so there's so many suggestions in the book. It starts out with um, 10 facts or myths about reading just to remind parents that although we can read, we might not necessarily remember all the underpinnings that are involved in reading. And then the book explains how the brain works and how we learn and process information. And so if you know how the brain works, it makes it much easier to actually find a plan, develop a strategy. Um, Then the book takes parents from a child's perspective Um, through the reading process and shows them what children experience. So for instance, we need background knowledge in order to read. We don't necessarily realize how much of it we apply to the printed word because we do it so automatically. We call it automaticity. Um, We also need to know which information to bring to which text. And those two factors right there cause so many comprehension failures. We also need to know how to We call it integrating propositions. We need to know how to take ideas and how to add them um, together to build a picture in our mind. And the research clearly shows that if we teach children to do those three basic comprehension strategies, their reading improves exponentially. So those are three suggestions that we could do. If you like, I could read you examples from the book of the research to show parents exactly what children go through. Sure, but but first, before that, um, what I'm hearing you kind of explain is, first of all, to make reading just part of our daily routines. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of parents do that, whether it's, you know, reading a bedtime story or just taking time to to pause and read. Um, But how do you like when you are reading, should we be stopping and talking about what what the child is understanding, or you know, are are we are we kind of pausing every once in a while to make sure that the child is comprehending the story? And and I guess this would be maybe later on when they are uh, you know more verbal, because beforehand we're we're reading more to uh, give vocabulary and to have that connection. Well, you're absolutely right. It depends on the age of the child. 
So for example, at any age, we want to keep reading fun. We want to keep it interactive and we want to keep a conversation going because we want to bring out the idea that it's not just words on a page, but something's happening. And so we want to make it a fun, interactive experience where we share you know, whatever adventure we're on. So for infants and toddlers, we read to them, we animate our voices, we make it fun and exciting. And we don't always make it, you know, bedtime is reading time, but rather read throughout the day so that it's, you know, <laughs> vary the time of day. So it's not always associated with bedtime. For older children, you know, we want to bring their lives into the book. So pick books that involve something to do with your child's current activities or take a book with you that relates to whatever adventure you're going on. If you're going to the park to have a picnic, take a book along that has a story about a park and a picnic. And that way children learn to associate all of that background knowledge with, with whatever is in the printed text. Another really fun thing to do with children of any age, um, so make picture books. So take um, a lot of people have iPhones or, or phones that, you know, take pictures. Take pictures of your children engaged in an activity and build a story with them. So you can do it on the computer. Or if you're lucky enough, you can print it out and put one word on each page so that children begin to understand that the words have more meaning than just the one word itself. And if they're part of the story, think how much background knowledge they have that they wouldn't necessarily have with somebody else's book. Right, right. I love that idea. And and I know I use this idea for um, helping parents like establish routines sometimes that are are a little bit <laughs> harder during the day. And I say, you know, take take photos of your child doing the the activity. But I love that you're you're actually creating storybooks with them uh, for for all sorts of activities that they're doing. Oh, absolutely. And the books last a lifetime. My oldest is turning 30 and he still loves reading those books. Oh, <laughs> that's so beautiful. As well. Yeah, yeah. So you've been doing this for, for quite some time. That's oh, beautiful. yes. <laughs> yeah. So you said that there was a, a piece of the research that you wanted to share? Well, so in the book, it talks about, this is not my research, this is brilliant research by other theorists. But the first concept or one of the first concepts um, that involved in reading comprehension is this idea that if you don't have the background knowledge, it's hard to make sense of a story. And so we find that young children don't necessarily have the same background knowledge as adults. And so it's difficult for them to make sense of stories that we think are obvious. And the, I mean, there are several points. Shank and Abelson did this research back in 1975. And their point was, First of all, we need the background knowledge. And second of all, you work really hard to bring that knowledge to the story. And speaking as a developmental psychologist, we have to teach our children to do that. So if you would like, I could read you an example that's designed for adults to show us how children experience this background knowledge loss or lack. Sure. So uh, again, this is by Shank and Abelson in 1975. And if you're reading along in the book, it's page 100. Jim went to the restaurant and asked to be seated in the gallery. He was told there would be a half-hour wait. Forty minutes later, the applause for his song indicated that he could proceed with the preparation. Twenty guests had ordered his favourite, a cheese souffle. Jim enjoyed the customers in the main dining room. After two hours, he ordered the house speciality, roast pheasant under glass. It was incredible to enjoy such exquisite cuisine and yet still have $15. He would surely come back soon. 
So now, <laughs> I'm going to guess at uh, how your audience took this story. Well, Jim, we all know someone called Jim, right? Went to the restaurant, that's easy, and asked to be seated in the gallery. Well, there's a problem, right? But I sound a little foreign, so maybe a gallery is something in Scotland that we don't have in America. Anyway. That was my thought exactly. <laughs> so he was told there'd be a half hour wait. Okay, well, we've all waited. That's not even too bad in a restaurant these days. And then the trouble starts. 40 minutes later, the applause for his song, what song <laughs> indicated that he could proceed with the preparation? What preparation? And so Shankin Abelson's point was, look how hard we're working. I mean, we're just desperately trying to make sense of this based on everything we know about restaurants. And then somewhere probably in the next paragraph, we're wondering what we're doing after this. We're wondering what's for dinner. We're wondering about the last time we met Jim or went to a restaurant. In other words, we just stopped focusing. And so Shank and Abelson just are highlighting the point that if you don't have the background knowledge, it's so much hard work just to try and get anything out of a story. And so what would we recommend for parents? Again, take books to every single occasion, a trip to the dentist, a walk in the park, you know, splashing on the beach, whatever it is we're doing that day. Take a book with you because it teaches children to bring the story with them and to take their information back to the story. Yeah. And what I'm hearing, Claire, in your description and this understanding of background knowledge is this idea, too, that for young children, at least, it's it's about concrete information. It's about realistic information that is going on in their day-to-day lives, um, as opposed to maybe more fanciful or kind of fables and and these made up stories that might be uh harder to make sense because there is no there is no you know background knowledge on an elephant you know wearing a suit and getting on an airplane or something like that right would you would you agree with that i mean is that something well, absolutely. I mean, listen, we want to promote children's imaginations for sure. But when we're talking about reading comprehension, it needs to be something that they've experienced and they have knowledge about because we're focusing on teaching them to understand the printed word. And there's lots of other things we can do to promote their imagination. Right. And to me, I mean, and, and this is, you know, from my Montessori background of, of how we try to be as concrete as possible, at least those first six years, and that their imagination will grow from from the realistic information right it's it's they will have background knowledge to to imagine anything else but we don't impose kind of our adult imagination if that makes sense absolutely and that goes back to the idea of allowing a child to lead and let the parents follow and learn to think as your child thinks instead of asking your child to get in line you know with what you're doing Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think many of the issues that parents have, or some of the issues that parents have, uh, is that because we're, you know, dual income families, because we're single parents raising children, mo- now more than ever, we're asking our children to fit into our routine, rather than working around our children's wants and needs. And I think sometimes we see some disciplinary issues, we see some um, pushback from our children because they, you know, they don't go at the same pace we go at. So I think it all blends into the same topic and issue. Definitely, definitely. And and actually, just this morning, I was on a Instagram live about uh, about that. I mean, it was about observation, but we were talking about how children can help us 
slow down, right? That it's about us going at their pace and not kind of pushing them to come at this, you know, frenetic pace that we're we're all on these days. Absolutely. That's exactly. And, you know, so many parents have been working from home, unfortunately, mistakenly believe that they can simultaneously work and raise children in the same hour. And the truth of the matter is your children deserve 100% of your attention. And when we try and divide our attention and we try and work and also, you know, skip out on childcare and take care of our children at the same time, oftentimes it leads to frustration and annoyance and anxiety and poor job performance because children need our undivided attention. Right. So so how can we help parents who are working from home and who don't have childcare, like without guilt tripping them that, that that their children need their undivided attention because the, the the reality is that you know many parents are working from home these days and can't really uh, do without this work well listen you're absolutely right you know we have to put food on the table and we have to put a roof over our heads but we also owe it to our children to give them that undivided attention and so in whatever way we can manage to you know use parents grandparents you know share the time with our peer groups and our, our our work colleagues and our friends so that maybe, you know, you watch somebody's child one day, you know, and then somebody else watches your child while you work the next day. But we weren't, the paradigm has shifted so that, you know, instead of having mom stay home and take care of the children while dad goes out to work, you know, that's not the case anymore. And so we have to learn how to adapt our parenting if we're if we're going to be you know single parents or we're going to have a dual income in the in the household, it's a challenge. But children's needs haven't changed, and children's needs aren't going to change. In fact, there was a Kaiser Permanente study where they asked children, "What would you like if you could do anything you like? What would you like?" And they said unequivocally, unequivocally, they wanted time with their parents, just one on one, a hundred percent focused on them. And it was such a telling study because it was long before COVID and long before, you know, we had so many people working from home. But, you know, children are talking loudly and clearly. We see these behavioral issues. We see this oppositional defiance. We see a lot of behavioral, you know, characteristics because children want their parents' attention. So whilst, yes, we do have to work, maybe we have to not necessarily have our dream job in that given moment, but make our dream job parenting and do something different in order to earn a living because our children deserve us and they deserve our time and they're better for it. Right, right. And I also hear from what you're saying is, is you know, if we are home and needing to, to work on a task, if we can, you know, set our children up to, to be able to do things on their own so that when we are you know, able to have that time with them, you know, we've gotten our things done, they've, they've been busy with an activity, not necessarily a screen. Uh, (laughs) And, and, and so forth. But yeah, it is, it's definitely a modern day dilemma, this whole notion of, you know, parents working at home, having the pressure to um, churn in the work and, and still have their children with them. Right, it certainly is. And listen, childcare centers are very expensive. Some of them are phenomenal and some of them are not. But you have to have a realistic approach to, you know, your plan as you move forward. You know, what is your goal for parenting? What is your goal for earning a living? And how can you marry the two so that it works for everybody? I'm not really not in favor of electronic babysitters. 
But it's really in the formative years till children get to kindergarten and, you know, first grade that parents need so much, you know, extra childcare. And it is a challenge. It's a challenge for our whole society. It's not just a, a parental issue. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about it is our choices that we make too, right? Because this, this time period that, that when they're very young and need our undivided def- attention doesn't last forever. So during that time, what is it that you can maybe change in your lifestyle to be able to accommodate uh, both you and them? Right. I mean, there's no judgment, you know, I'm certainly not judging anybody, but do we need the extra money? Do we need the additional dollars? Or could we spend the time interacting with our children? Because it's time you will never get back. I mean, the two-ness of two, the four-ness of four, we have to learn to really enjoy and appreciate those moments. And yes, it's great to have a career and it's great to work, but there's also the idea that we could all just slow down, take a breath and enjoy things along the way. The journey is the most important part, not necessarily the end goal. Yes, so true. So true. Now, to to kind of shift a little bit topics, because you being a cognitive development psychologist, I'd really like your take on this whole digital world that we're in and screens for our children. I have a, I'm very opinionated on this, so I will keep quiet, but I want to hear what you have to say about offering digital devices to children. I sadly am also very outspoken, but more sadly, I'm not going to keep quiet. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we know from from back in the 1950s, we know how children learn and think and process information. They need hands-on manipulation with the environment. Give them blocks, give them a pencil and paper, send them outside, you know, go outside with them and play in the mud. Whatever they do is new to them. It's exciting. It's fun. It sparks their imagination. And whether it's a computer screen or a television set, it does exactly the opposite because television is a passive activity. Although we adults at the end of a long day love to sit down, relax and watch a television show, children don't need to sit down and relax and watch TV because the kind of day they've had doesn't involve the same kind of cognitive energy that adults use. And so children enjoy engaging in their environment. They enjoy manipulating the environment. And if we as adults lead, then they will follow. And there's so much more to be gained from allowing them to play, even allowing them to get bored. Boredom is the beginning of creativity. It's perfectly okay, you know, during the long summer months, you don't have to schedule every single minute for them. Let them come up with the ideas and then you can follow along. Love that. Music to my ears. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take the fall for that one. But back in the day when my children were little, my older son, oldest son once said to me, how come you get to make all the rules? So I thought about it. I said, you know, I, I actually don't make the rules. Like society makes the rules. So he looked blankly at me because it was a silly thing to say to a five-year-old. But at any rate, we decided to make him parent for the day. And it was so successful that every year I had two children back then. And every year they would take turns. And once in the summer, they would get to be parent for the day. And at the end of the day, it always ended up the same way. They're like, I don't want to do this anymore. You be in charge. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. I love that. You be the parent for the day. (laughs) 
I learned a lot by my parenting, let me tell you. <laughs> it taught me to change my ways. <laughs> yeah, no, that's wonderful because, yeah, it's true. We're, we're, and, and what I love what you said about, you know, sending them outside or letting them be bored and everything. It's so true that I feel that, you know, today's parent feels like they have to constantly entertain their children like keep them busy and, and give them something to do. And to me, I, I just feel like that is not your job. Like you do not need to be entertaining your child all the time. Right. You're not the entertainment director. You're the parent. And listen, I'm a crazy foreigner. When I first got here, I, I really wasn't familiar with the concept of summer camps and travel teams. And I remember the first summer... I mean, I live on Long Island. It's surrounded by beaches. And I remember the first summer when I had young children, I packed them up. I went to the beach and I saw a group of children all wearing the same colored T-shirts. I was thinking, oh, well, that's interesting. It never dawned on me that it was a summer camp. You know, obviously, you know, working parents, you know, they have to come up with something for their children to do while they are at work. But this notion that we could take more time with our children it would be phenomenal if if we could just give up a little bit more time to allow, you know, the, the fun and the creativity to be ours as well as our children's. It, we're missing out on so much when we park them off to after school activities and, and, and you know, um, summer camps. And <laughs> I used to sit at the bottom of my driveway and watch some of my neighbors drive up the road and down the road and back up again, going to this activity and the other activity. And, you know, they'd have fast food in the back of the minivan as they went here, there and everywhere. Children just don't need that. Maybe parents think they do, but children just don't need all that scheduling and all that direct instruction. They need a lot more free time and a lot more downtime when they can be themselves and they can lead so that, again, we adults can follow. Mm, I love that. So, so, so true. And I hope that everybody who is listening to this can can take this to to give yourself permission to slow down unschedule all those activities and just <laughs> enjoy enjoy the moments because it is true you know it will go by quite rapidly and then they're they're no longer around and and to that effect i just wanted to share with you this is a personal anecdote but my daughter is actually uh has been living and working in scotland for the past 6 years Oh wow. She went to the University of Glasgow and has so did I. <laughs> and has no desire to return to California. So <laughs> she's she's very happy there. Yes. No, she she found she found her 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 town, her community, and she's she's just very happy there. So Oh, that's fabulous. I'm sorry she's so far away, but it's fabulous. Yes, yes. And and that's the thing, you know, our children like it's true, you know, parents say, oh, but don't you miss her? And I say, yes, I miss her. But for me, what's most important with my children is that they're both, you know, following their path and that they're happy and content with their lives. And, you know, as long as they're happy, I'm, I'm fine with them being far away. Absolutely. I think that's a beautiful sentiment. And, you know, um, just to address that, teaching at a community college um, some of my students are students who have failed at a four-year college and their parents have said, that's it, you know, go to the community college and prove you can do it and then we'll send you back to the four-year school. And so when you talk to them and, you know, we have class discussions, they openly say, you know, my parents' goal was to get me to college, but I'm so burnt out and I'm so tired. I just, I can't do it anymore. I partied, I, you know, I didn't do my laundry, I didn't do my homework. I didn't, you know, I failed out. And, the, you know, 
what we're hearing from from some students is that the end goal ought not to be getting your children into college, but rather teaching them the skills that they need to be successful in life. Yes, so true. Yeah, it goes back to this whole child approach. I think, unfortunately, we may have um, focused our attention rather too much on this idea of getting into a brand name school and, and getting our children, you know, AP classes so they can skip some classes in college. And we're pushing them along at such a terrible rate that unfortunately, our children are paying the price for it. That and there's just, you know, a big, big gap in, in socioeconomics. It's just, it's not, it's not for everyone, for sure. It's, um, and, and for me, I, I know, you know, when we say following our children, uh, so my firstborn, she actually, when she was done with high school, she said, I want to take a gap year. I want to go be a, an au pair in France. And we were like, uh, really? Like we thought, you know, no, no, you have to go off to school right away. And she said, mom, I've been in school for the past 12 years. I just need a break. <laughs> and, and, and that's exactly what she needed. And then, you know, once that was done, she went back to school and has, you know, done her studies and, and loves to study, loves to be in school, but she just knew she wanted a break. And, and I think that is just so important to allow that to happen for our children. Sure. You know, that really is great. It's great that she could articulate that. And it's great that she had parents that listened because it's so hard sometimes to listen to what our children are saying to us because sometimes we think we know better. Maybe we do sometimes. <laughs> sometimes we should listen. Definitely. Definitely. Well, Claire, this has been delightful to have this conversation with you. Um, any Anything else that you would like to add to the topic of, of reading with our children? Just to summarize what we've been talking about, I'd love to just read the last um, little section of the book. It's called A Final Note. It's on page 219. So it's called This May Be Less Difficult to Read. Certainly no one ever said that parenting was easy. No one ever said that teaching was easy either. When parents try to teach, it can become doubly, fr uh, excuse me, it can become a doubly frustrating experience. I hope that this book has shed some light on some of the difficulties that children experience as they navigate a path that has become second nature for us. Remember, they are not like us. Their brains are wired differently. They think differently. They process information differently. If you want to succeed, learn to think as they think. Learn to process information as they process information. As I say goodbye to my last child and wave him off to begin his university experience, I urge you to remember that it's a journey that takes 18 long years. If you fixate on the outcome, the payoff, the final product, then it will be a bittersweet moment when you say your goodbyes. Try instead to enjoy the journey, the mistakes, the learning curves, and those precious moments. Let your children lead and learn to follow. Good luck and enjoy each moment of your journey. Beautiful. Thank you, Claire. That was beautiful. Um, I always like to end my uh, interviews with a more personal question, if I may. Sure. And that would be if you were to go back. So you said your eldest was 30? Turning 30. 30. Okay. So if you were to go back to 31 years ago, when you were expecting your first child, what wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? Exactly what I wrote in the book. Exactly. It's funny, as you were reading it, I was like, uh, should I even ask my question? 
Yes, beautiful. <laughs> you know, not every child succeeds, and not every child succeeds the first time they try something. And so I, I think our society is very much focused on success and very much focused on trophies and awards. And I think it's terribly important to just enjoy your child. Like we said at the beginning, enjoy the child you have, not the child you wish you had. You know, when they make a mistake, make it a learning experience and learn to uh, learn to teach them to laugh a little bit at themselves and not take it all quite so seriously. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Claire. This has been a delightful conversation and I really thank you for your time and for having written this book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Art of Parenting podcast. And if you did, please share it with your loved ones and make sure to leave a review so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.